This week, my guest is the infamous DJ Fat Tony. And I knew right away that it would be one that made me laugh and cry. But I wasn't prepared for how much it affected me on an emotional level and how I'm going to take away so much of what he has said for the rest of my life. I say this because Tony is possibly the most honest person I have ever dealt with on this podcast, warts and all, like loads of warts and his hopes and fears and how he articulates himself and how human he is. He made me realise and we reflected on it, how much we squirrel away and that we carry shame and how many secrets we all have. And this is no fairy tale story. Tony nearly died at the height of his addiction. And this raw and honest man has shown us that if he can deal with his shame, so can we. And this is a podcast that pays real testament to the power of human spirit, forgiving ourselves, taking responsibility, but the power that comes out of that. So get ready to cry and laugh and no little ears listening as we do discuss some challenging subjects such as drug and child abuse. Here's a podcast that possibly is going to change your life. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. So lovely to be talking to you today. There's so much, Tony, I want to talk to you about, but welcome to Conversations of Inspiration, my podcast. You're, I think, one of the coolest people that I've had on the podcast. (laughs) And I'm slightly feeling a little out of my depth because my son said, Mum, you've got like salt and pepper on your playlist and you're talking to DJ Factoni. What's going on here? So, um, yes, I'm really going to hope I'm going to keep up with you today, Tony. We all have salt and pepper on our playlist, don't we? Oh, okay. Okay, this is going well already. This is going okay. Why would no one have Push It (laughs) by Salt and Pepper on their playlist? It's one of the most most amazing tracks ever. Right. Okay, I've got a bit of street cred here. I just wanted to introduce you to everybody. You've lived this colourful life as a celebrity DJ. You've played private parties for Madonna, Donatella Versace, Victoria Beckham. Elton John has flown you out to LA to play at the Troubadour. You've teamed up with Kate Moss and you are just about one of the biggest renowned British DJs ever. And I can imagine there's a lot of stories in that vault that you have. But I wanted to also say that I know and what we're talking about today and I've got your book right here and I'm thoroughly enjoying it is this is all against the backdrop of addiction that nearly ended your life and today you're 16 years clean and your mission is supporting other people with addiction so I'm super happy Tony to be talking to you today so thank you. Thank you for having me you know um, 
all of that stuff that you just mentioned all comes from being sober. You know, yeah. it, that stuff wouldn't happen. You know, my life's incredible today because of the things I don't do anymore, mm. uh, not because of the things I do. Yeah, I'm very blessed. I just literally read that part on your on your book, actually, and I, it really made me stop and think, and I, I'm going to come back to that. Um, I saw on Instagram that you've actually just launched your new art exhibition, yeah. which is in collaboration with Ed Opaque. Is that yeah, how you pronounce correct. it? Yes, yeah. yes. Opaque. And it's called Church Halls and Broken Biscuits, and it's a tongue-in-cheek look at recovery. Can you tell me a bit more about it and just start with why it's called that? It's called Church Halls and Broken Biscuits because... When you go into recovery and you, you go to 12-step fellowships, they're mainly held in church halls. So I am myself and Opaque both spent an awful lot of time in church halls eating broken biscuits. So when we came up with the name, he was like, what are we going to call it? And I was like, let's call it church halls and broken biscuits. Because for me, it sums up early recovery. You know, mm. I, went to, I went to treatment rehab in Bournemouth and I, there's an awful lot of church halls in Bournemouth. And you kind of like... That's where you spend your early days. And I kind of think with the exhibition, what we've done with it is it's a celebration of all the things that people say to you in early recovery, like, oh, you're no fun anymore. Or there's lots of, there's, you know, lots of different factors to it. And what we did with the exhibition was we, we celebrated the inner child because when we start taking drink and drugs at a young age, we stay at that age mentally. It's like suddenly mm. we're picked up and we're put in a jam jar and someone screws the lid on. And we spend the next 28 years walking round and round in circles. And that kind of is addiction in so many ways. And then suddenly when you take the lid off the jam jar and, you know, you, you've got this new lease of life and change of life, you still at that mental age. So what we did with the exhibition was we wanted to show that within the pictures that we're all the, the children in us. And also it's about we use characters like Winnie the Pooh and... All of the heroes that Sesame you're Sesame Street. Yeah. We, they're all the heroes that you're given as a child. They're all the ones that you go to bed cuddling. And then when you get to three or four and you realise that Winnie the Pooh doesn't really do it for you anymore and suddenly sugar does or fast food or iPads and iPhones mm. that we all get given or we give our children to keep them quiet is really what you're doing is you're cementing the start of addiction on so many levels, taking your kids to McDonald's on a Saturday as a treat. So what we do is we learn that to get rewarded, we eat fast food. It's a treat. It's a reward. Yes. God, I hadn't thought of it. And it just sets that, that ball rolling. So we've done all these pictures with children praying to McDonald's, praying to KFC and, and all of those factors. Tell me, I mean, I love your Instagram and I follow it. In, so it makes me happy. You're the only person that makes me happy every single day because you have this way with dark humour and that's what's in this exhibition, isn't it? Yeah, when, totally. Has that always been you, no. dark humour? I mean, I've always had, I've always found humour in dark things. But, you know, for, for me now, I laugh at, I'm able to laugh at my past. I'm able to laugh at the wreckage because I've dealt with the wreckage. And yep. there's something really cathartic about laughing at that stuff. I'm not saying that you should laugh at everything, you know, you, you've done in your past. But for me, that stuff, there is no shame attached to it anymore. So I find humour mm. in it. You know, I used to laugh at things because I was unsure I was, or I was scared of them, so I would laugh at them. But now, you know, it's a way to hide the fact of my fear. Now my fears are no longer attached to that shame. 
I can really laugh at it. And I think that we live in such a mad world right now that you need to find humour in everything. Yeah. You know, in lockdown, when we were being drip-fed fear from 5am in the morning on GMTV by Piers Morgan screaming and shouting every day until uh, the minute you went to bed, we were pumped with fear because that's they wanted us to stay in our houses and that's what they wanted us to do. They wanted us to live in fear and be fearful of going out or going to the supermarket or any of those things. Mm. That's why I started really ramping up the Instagram pages because no one else was really doing it. They weren't laughing at the stuff that we were no. all being pumped full of. You know, it's really important. It's really important. I really mean it that you brighten my day. So anyone Thank not you. following you needs to. It's a little saucy on sometimes, but I absolutely love it. Tell me the book that you have written, I Don't yeah. Take Requests. It's totally raw. It's an honest account of your life. And I know you've covered a lot of experiences in this book mm -hmm. that you haven't previously spoken about. We're going to get into some of those stories, but I was wondering what the actual experience of writing it was like for you. And was it painful revisiting some of those dark moments in your life, Tony? Oh, my God, it was hell. <laughs> like, literally, it was hell. You know, we started off writing it and it was all great and it was all like, you know, I'm really enjoying this. And then we would come up against these subjects, you know, different parts of it, of the book. You know, for instance, the abuse chapter. You know, I didn't want to write that chapter at first. I was like, okay, can we leave that till last? And each day Mikey would come to my house and we would work on it. And he'd say, do you want to do abuse today? And I'd be like, no, I'm not ready for that. And then I, I kind of geared myself up for it. And as soon as we started talking about it and writing it, this is all stuff that I really thought I'd dealt with in the past. Yeah. I hadn't yeah. dealt with anything. What I had done right. was just push it to one side. I like, I plough through life. So I plough and plough and everything goes to the sides and then that's it being dealt with. And it, what happens is it builds up and builds up and then eventually it will fall in on you and you, it drowns you. And, you know, so the me thinking that I dealt with it because I never talked about it, mm. but, you know, coming to talk about it, it had such a major effect on me. You know, I got ill the day we were doing the uh, abuse chapter. I thought I had food poisoning. I was violently sick for two days. And what it had done was it had brought all that stuff to the surface. Mm. I went to bed that night and I had, I could smell the guy. I could, yeah, it was, it was really vivid. And, you know, uh, so I had to go off and get trauma therapy for mm. a year whilst writing the book, intense trauma therapy, just to deal with some of the stuff that I hadn't really previously talked about because, you know, there's so much shame that was attached to all of those stories mm. in that book. Mm. That yeah. when we were writing it, you know, I knew from day one that if I wanted the book to be the most honest book in the world to deal with that stuff, because I thought that if it's going to help anyone, it's going to help me. Yeah. And that's where it starts. When I can help myself, then I'm, I'm available to help other people. Yeah. I'm a really good advice giver. But you know what? I can tell you everything. I have hypocrite written on my hand for a reason, because I can tell you not to do this stuff, but whilst I'm doing it. But what I wanted to do with this book was just to be so brutally honest and go in depth on everything. And it took a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of pain to do it, which has been the most rewarding thing about the book is the fact that I have no secrets. I have no secrets. It's quite an amazing thing because, you know, everyone listening to you right now, we've all got so many secrets. 
We're yeah. all so not not to different levels and everything, but we've all carry such shame, don't we? Yeah, we really do. We really do. And it's something that actually as you get older and you sort of look at mortality and everything, it's so draining. It's such a horrible experience. And you just wonder, is it going to be the thing that you're sort of on your deathbed and you're wondering why the hell did I carry all of that around with me? Once we, we wrote the book and we handed it in, it took two and a half years to write, by the way, because we kept, I kept going back on stuff and saying, okay, that's, that needs to change because I wasn't that honest on that part. And because sometimes when we're telling the truth, it's not the actual truth, it's our truth. And there's a difference. Mm, do you get what I mean? Yes, there and is. And then you see it in a different light. How you've perceived it. A hundred percent. So writing it, you know, it just changed everything. I would wake up at 2am in the morning and think, what have you done? Why on earth have you done that? after we handed it in mm. why have you told the world that stuff you know your life's really good right now you don't need everyone knowing that stuff and those are the bits that those things that woke me up at 2am which I gave such power to that I thought people would throw bricks at me for or or literally hate me for are the things that people love me for mm-hmm. you know I'd be at the airport and people like women with their kids and their husbands would come up to me and say oh my god I've just read your book I just want to hug you and I was like it was so weird wow. the first time it happened. Yeah, because you were expecting the opposite. Oh, totally. I wasn't expecting some, like, you know, there's no such word as normal in that sense, but like a woman and a housewife with her kids that have yeah. read my book. Because I haven't written The Gruffalo. I've not written yeah. a children's book. I've not written <laughs> like haven't. a, you know, a fairy tale. What I've written is a book of my shame. And, yeah. you know, just like the HIV, all of that stuff that's in that book, which a lot of people would struggle to understand you know, why I was the way I was yeah, and what the outcome of every story. I truly believe that people wouldn't accept me for that, but it's been the opposite. They really have. I truly believe from the bottom of my heart that's because I've been so honest. Yeah, and it's refreshing, Tony, because, as I said, we carry around things and there you are having the courage to go there and almost making ourselves question, should we go there in our own sort of ways? I want to, if I can, I'm going to get back to some of those experiences. I want to go back to the little Tony because you grew up in Battersea with your mum and dad and you were a middle child of three brothers and your dad was a plumber and your mum was a cleaning supervisor at Buckingham Palace and you were self-proclaimed mummy's boy and you wrote that you were always drawn to drama even as a child, whether that was the way you were dressing as a child or the fact you were quite normal you actually said that you were obnoxious is that that's how you recall it yeah totally I mean listen I was wayward I was like if you told me to do something I wouldn't do it and you know later on now we have a name for it you know it's ADHD back then I was a problematic child I would be sent to different schools the school couldn't cope with me and they would send me off to the problematic school which was full of kids that had been thrown out of school for fighting and everything else and I was it stuck in there because no one could understand me because I couldn't understand what was going on myself Mm. I suffer with really bad dyslexia I suffer with ADHD some days it's around a six and some days it can be a really bad 12 you know that's how I gauge it and as a child being in that environment and being misunderstood and also being knowing that my sexuality was Mm. in the time when being gay wasn't accepted you know on any way shape or form you know especially on the council estate in Batsy I really did not give a shit you know, and I would fight against everything. And then, of course, when I talk about the abuse, like that happened at the age of 10. 
That changed my life dramatically. Suddenly I was sexualized at the age of 10. Mm. And suddenly I had this newfound purpose that I thought that I was in control of. How can a 10-year-old understand being sexualized at that age and what it, what it meant? And suddenly I would find myself in these scenarios with these men and I would try and manipulate. Oh, it was awful. And, I, you know, when I look back on it, for many, many years, I hated that little kid. I hated him. Today I have nothing but compassion for him. Mm, you know, since writing yes. this book, I have so much self-compassion for all of those things and all of, that, all of those places and everything that happened. I have compassion for it. Whereas before it was shame attached to it. Yes, or yeah. I kind of just thought, oh, well, that was the way I was. Because by saying, oh, well, that's the way it was, was me not dealing with it or not looking at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I'm so sorry, Tony, that you went through that experience. I'm deeply sorry. It's it's just, it is terrible. Absolutely terrible. It is terrible. And the sad thing is those things that I went through back then when I was 10 which is 47 years ago, is still happening today to kids and to people all around the world. You know, people use words to blame other people for things in this society mm. right now, which don't sit right with me. You know, people calling the likes of Sam Smith and people like that paedophile because he dresses differently or he, mm. he doesn't fit into their norm. Mm. You know, He's a gay man. He's not a paedophile. Paedophiles yeah. and gay men are totally different things. LGBT, you know, it's uh, someone who's been abused. I find it really offensive if someone throws that word around. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's one of the most offensive. It really is. Can I touch on your father? Because he was a real man's man. Yeah, 100%, And do you feel yeah. that you were actually given a gift, especially by your mum, when you said she gave you the gift of freedom to be yourself um, yeah. and that you never had to come out to her? No. Now, that's quite, if you think about, as you said, that era, that time, yeah. you know, that's quite an extraordinary thing for your mum to feel that confident about you. Well, you know, also my mum and dad met in a lesbian bar. You know, that's where oh. they met. There was a lesbian bar, a secret lesbian bar in King's Road called The Gate. And my okay. dad was doing work there. My dad was working for the woman. And my mum and dad met there because my mum used to go there with her friend Valda, who, who was the friend of the woman that ran it. And they would go there on King's Road before going out. So my mum and dad actually met there. So yeah. there was never really, you know, although my dad was six foot four and fingers like bananas, it was never really an issue. What was an issue was the fact that he was worried about the way I was dressed or the way I would go out. And that's what he had an issue with. It would be like, look, come on, you're going to cause trouble. You're going to draw people. He wanted, you know, he didn't want me to get attacked or beaten up and yeah. stuff. Do you get what I mean? And Yeah, I can understand that in a 100%, way. 100%. You know, and my dad taught us to fight. That was one of his, one of many things that we learned from our dad was to pick up a brick <laughs> and hit someone with it. You know, that was he, the way it was. He would like be like, if you get picked on, you pick something up and you whack them with it. And if we came home from school and we'd been in a fight or we'd been, beaten up, my dad would take us back and make us hit the kid. It'd be like, you've beat them up or I'm going to hit you. You know, at the time, wow. it seemed really, really like a tough way to bring someone up. But what it did do was make us stand up for ourselves. It made yeah. us it made us stronger and not be like, he knew he had a gay son and he knew that I would come up against those barriers yeah. and against that bigotry and against that homophobia, even way back then. And he taught me how to stand up for myself. And almost in that you had an opposite going on in your family. You had your dad 
with the banana fingers helping you yeah. pick up a brick and you had your mum, was it the age of six uh, that she let you buy some fake boobs and at 11 you got your hair permed and things? Yeah, of course. So yeah. you've got these two parents who are... My mum loved it. My mum loved the fact that she had a gay son. She still does, I think, you know. There was never at any point where my mum said to me, I don't want you doing that. I don't think you should do that. And, you know, my mum, so I remember once my mum saying to me, the doctor told me when you were three that you were gay. I was like, I was diagnosed, was I? But, you know, it was like literally our GP, our family GP had said to my mum, I think Tony may be gay. You know, like it was like a, you know, he's got leprosy yeah. or something. But yeah. I, I yeah. found it quite funny to this day that, that that's what the doctor said. I remember the doctor to this day vividly smoking his pipe in his surgery, which was pretty I mean, healthy at the time. Yeah, brilliant. So it's all done it. <laughs> Every week I hand over this part of the podcast to our brilliant partners at Dell Technologies. Dell Technologies are committed to empowering all small business owners with the tools and the technology to connect, to collaborate and lift one another up through Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network, also known as DWEN. Launched in 2009, Dwen is an online community designed to globally connect women entrepreneurs, offering clever learning resources and access to the kind of brilliant technology that really supports business growth. Since its inception, Dwen has positively impacted an incredible 86,000 women in business. With multiple events each month, Dwen gives women access to Dell Tech Advisors as well as the chance to engage with women at all stages of their business journey for free. There's nothing to lose and everything to gain. To find out more about Dwen and how to sign up, head to dwen.com. Now back to our conversation of inspiration. You mentioned this, Tony, you were expelled from school and in your teens and you uh, you started clubbing and becoming part of the scene that was old, unfolding in London in the early 80s. And it was a time, wasn't it, of music, fashion, massive creativity. Tell me about this time because I love what you wrote about it. You said that the King's Road was the social media of the time. It so was. I just thought that was a brilliant description. What was it like? Well, you know, we just come out of the punk era, so you still had like 400 punks hanging round by the square outside the Chelsea drugstore, you know, on King's Road. And I worked in a place called the Great Gear Market, which was like a real young designer indoor market. But that was the hub of new romanticism. You had like Melissa Kaplan, Carn and Bell, you had Rusty Egan, you had all of these icons of that era with their stalls and their shops in there. And I was very blessed to have left school and gone to work there. Mm. And people would walk up and down the King's Road being photographed because all the photo- photographers would go to King's Road, taking right. pictures of the punks. Vivian had World's End, Malcolm. Yes. They just don't. So you had all the pirates. You had every it all going on on that road on a Saturday, and people would parade up and down getting photographed. It was amazing. It was like, you know, if you wanted to meet someone for, or you wanted to get in a band or anything, that's where you went. Yeah, that's where you went. You went to King's Road or you went to Kensington Market. But King's Road really was from Sloan Square right the way down to World's End and back. That was it. People would walk up and down, up and down all day long. <laughs> 
that's just incredible to think. I mean, do you think now when you look at this sort of, you know, the youth today and young people today, and you think about everything being documented and uh, worrying about looking a certain way and looking at screens instead of reading or creating art or music, do you think people were more creative then than they are today? Yeah, totally. You know, the 80s and 90s were really a creative time because we didn't have social media. We did not have it in the palm mm. of our hand. To be somebody or to actually get anywhere in life, you had to create your own platform. You know, I talked about this the other day at a music conference. Back then, you actually had to be good at what you did. Yeah. Yeah. You did just create an account and see what was available on I Instagram, pretend, right? You actually yeah. had to do something for you can't it. pretend to be in your bedroom in Pimlico and be pretending to DJ in Ibiza on, <laughs> on social media. You had to yeah. actually be there yeah. and you had to actually create something. And that was, that was why now when you look at everybody in their high jobs, whether it be Edward Emmanuel or Kim Jones, all of the uh, top designs all come from an era of no social media. They're all the most creative people. There was no hiding. Yeah, no bullshit. You had to find your milk crate. You had to stand on it and shout as loud as you could. That was the way it was. And that, now people have too many platforms that they don't use well enough. And also I think the youth of today don't have tribes. Back then we mm. had tribes. We had punk. We had mod. We had all of these amazing tribes that you could become a part of. Now we don't. Well, now we have, you know, we've gone back to gang culture on so many levels. and. We don't have people like punk rock and, you know, Acid House. All of those were major game changers within our culture, subculture. We don't have that today. We have labels today. We're brand-led today. And that in itself kind of says it all, really, because, you know, we're marketed. And if the marketing's right, everyone will wear it. Back then, mm. everyone made their own outfits. Everybody was creative. Yeah. And we don't have that today. You know, we really don't. And I really thought after the pandemic that something really amazing was going to happen. So that, like there would be that change again. That didn't happen. But, you know, with what's going on in the rest of the world right now, I kind of think there needs to be some kind of new uprising in the sense of, okay, this is what, what we believe in. This is the way we dress. And then music will go with it. Because throughout time, music has always led those eras, whether it be yes. the swinging 60s, whether it be punk rock, whether it be acid house, it's all been music-led. Right now, we're not being music-led, we're being label-led. There's yeah. a real difference. We're not actually being led, you know, as no. well. You know, that's, that's no, the not. other thing, isn't it? But, you know, also in the 80s, you know, when we had the poll tax riots and we had the birth of acid house, the reason acid house came along was because we'd had enough of the government. We'd had enough of Thatcherism. We'd had enough of being downtrodden and told what to do. Yeah. And I really think that's happening again right now. That yeah. as a nation, we've had enough. You know, I never got to the point in my life where I would ever believe that I didn't want to live in England anymore. And I'm at that point. And that's really sad. It's really, it's really sad. sad that I, I think about it three or four times a week thinking I need to move away. And that's for so many different reasons. We live in a lawless state. We pay such high taxes mm. and get nothing in return. Mm. Do you get what I mean? It's bizarre. Yeah. I've got to say, it's bizarre you say that. This weekend, a few friends were talking about it's the first time that they considered that they might not be here forever in the UK. 
And it was like, we'd never spoken about anything like that. And it's, it's starting to come into people's minds that they're not proud. They're not proud of this anymore. And they don't want to be part of it. But what's the choice, you know, and this is the... The circular debate. Well, that's just it. Where do you go? We've ruined the fact that we're moving yeah. to Spain or anywhere in Europe. Thanks to some really bright people voting for Brexit. As of November, we can't travel without a visa. And what's really sad about it is the fact that the majority of people that did vote for Brexit, when they go to travel, they're going to have to give free fingerprints. And if you've got a criminal record, you're not going to go anywhere. I'm not saying everyone who voted for Brexit has got a criminal record, don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying to you is the fact that we've now lost that freedom. Well, no one thought it through enough, did they? Well, they all thought that they were going to get their freedom from voting Brexit. We're going to get our yeah. country back. What you've done is make it our country very, very small and very insignificant. Mm, gosh, it's a scary time, isn't I it? I see it happening because I travel all the time. And I, yeah. you know, when I go to places in Europe where we're no longer welcome, and I mean, we are no longer welcome. We're the ones that have to queue up. We're the ones that have to do COVID tests still in certain places. We're the ones that are herded like cattle into cattle runs when the rest of Europe walks through freely. And mm. we're paying a price for it. We really are. Yeah, I really agree. Tell me, I want to go back to when you were 18. Yeah. Life was very much in this fast lane and you were making a name for yourself. Yeah. Uh, DJing at the WAG, at the Limelight, flying to New York on Concord to DJ there. And you had this army of celebrity friends and you, I've just been looking at your book and you've got these amazing photographs from your whole life. I mean, insane in the posters to advertise your DJing gigs and you were earning huge amounts of money. You were taking lots of drugs but you described the 80s and 90s as a magical time why is it magical they really were well firstly i was taking loads of drugs and but i wasn't abusing drugs at that point it wasn't until much later in around right. 95 that the the drug abuse really kicked in that's when it kind of really went bad but up to that point the majority of my friends who i grew up with will suddenly become the biggest stars on the planet so we were living the best life. We were flying everywhere. We we had no cares in the world. You know, it was like really was that pinnacle point. It was pre-AIDS as well. You've got to remember that. Mm -hmm. And within my community, the gay community, LGBT community, were living their best lives as such. You know what I mean? Yeah. We were doing everything that we wanted to do. It was all about fun and it was about free living. And all that changed really drastically, very quickly. But you know, the 80s and 90s were really magical because at the same time I was, you know, I was in my late 20s and 30s and I was just having the best time being flown around the world doing a job that... That you loved. Totally. And I love even more today than I did then. But, you know, it was just in bizarre. You know, I come off the council estate and the next minute I'm flying around the world on Concord, getting paid vast amounts of money, being respected. Yeah. I mean, wow, who wouldn't have a good time? Why wouldn't you find that magical? Yeah, but these hedonistic times, as you allude to, morphed into a decade-long battle with addiction. And I read that yeah. you said you suffered from imposter syndrome and you actually had anxiety and your lifestyle was becoming more and more destructive where drugs mm. and alcohol was more now, like you just said, a coping mechanism rather yeah. than it was recreational fun. Also, it's what happens is the more money I was earning, the more I had to get rid of it. You know, as a kid, when I the abuse happened, I would get paid to do a job for the guy mm. that was abusing me. So money become a really dirty thing. It become a, something mm. that I 
were always had to get rid of. So the more money I earned, the more money I had to spend. And in that lifestyle that I had, I really could not cope with success. I really didn't know what success was. My other friends were all number one and all around the world or they were selling out stadiums. I was DJing. I gauged my success against their success. My success wasn't enough. I wasn't Mm. doing, I didn't have a number one single. And Mm. the imposter syndrome was always there, you know. So I would travel, like, I'd be on Concord and I'd be thinking, when I get there, they're all going to hate me. And that still happens today. But I think the way it happens today is in a different way. It keeps me on my toes. I don't take anything for granted today. I've learned to use the imposter syndrome to the best of my ability. But back then, it was crippling. My anxiety, I've always bit my nails and I would bite my nails. I would sit rocking backwards and forwards, just riddled with anxiety, knowing that I had to go and do a gig or had to go to the airport at 6am or any of those things. And I would I would self-destroy it. I would just destroy everything eternally because I never felt that I was good enough. I never felt that I was the person I was being made out to be. I never believed in it. I think it also stems from the fact that it was never the job that I ever wanted. I just fell into it because of my love of music. And what had happened was the reason why I started DJing was because I loved music, but also because I went out clubbing because of the music. And I kind of lost contact with the music because the more drink and drugs that get in the way, you lose that connection. You don't Mm. feel the music anymore. You feel the drugs or you feel the alcohol or you feel the people. And all of those things are obstacles to that connection between you and music Mm. and I'd lost that and I kind of lost my way with it and kind of was just lost within my own addiction but I'd also lost it within my own career it had blown up so quickly so quickly and Tony can I ask something when as you mentioned you were 10 years old when the abuse started and you were living with your mum and dad and your two brothers and yeah. and you were groomed and your mum was battling breast cancer at the time yeah. and your dad was struggling to keep the home fires burning and you you experienced this terrible abuse did you never connect at the time, you know, I, I hope today we're now much more aware of what, you know, the actual after effects of abuse and how that can manifest itself and show. Did you ever put those two things together? No, I never. The chaos of your adult life and how it was descending. No. Did you ever put those two things together? You know, there's a million and one things I would blame it on at the time and whilst I was going through it. But the abuse was one of the, the things that I didn't blame it on because I never talked about it. I never brought it to the surface. I never dealt with it. I was already wayward <laughs> through yeah. ADHD and, and everything else at that point in time. And the abuse was something that I learned very quickly to turn into a superpower, believe it or not. It sounds really weird. But at the time uh, when I was being abused, when I, I was being paid, I manipulated him, I would blackmail him, I would do all of those things because I hated him. And I hated myself. And I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to do this. But as, you know, as I say, 10 to 14 year old, as I was, it went on for four years. I still today cannot remember how I got away from him or what happened. But what I do know is I never once sort of thought, okay, this is who I am because of that. I always thought that this is who I am because of various other reasons. I never connected those two because it was so pushed to the back of my mind. I mean, I spoke about it once when I was about 
16, I think, or 17 in Ibiza to my friend Gabriella. And then I never spoke again about it until I was 38. Yeah. I kept it suppressed. And, you know, when you keep things in like that, it always comes out sideways. Yeah. And it did, didn't it? Because yeah. like in late 90s and early 2000s, your life did descend into this chaos and your addiction very nearly killed you. You weighed seven stone, you lost all your teeth, you were unknowingly living with HIV diagnosis because of your addiction and ultimately you left in a coma for four months. And yeah. you're so open on your Instagram and showing photos of yourself at that time. And it's, yeah. it is heartbreaking to see. What was the moment you knew things had to change that would happen every tuesday (laughs) every tuesday i would be like i can't do this anymore i can't do this anymore and then wednesday would come along the magical wednesday where i would be like i'm all right today i feel a little bit better and off i'd go again i knew that i couldn't get it i think that the last three four years of my using were the probably the worst like from about 2000 and 2003, 2004, I was diagnosed in 2001 with HIV. But I actually, at that point when my mum found me collapsed on the floor in my house, she took me to hospital and I was in the hospital in induced coma for four months because my brain had swelled up so much. Uh, I had full-blown AIDS at that point in time. Mm. If that had been a few years before when they diagnosed me, I, I would be dead. But due to the fact that at that point in time they... I'd found different types of new antiviral drugs to yep. trial. And they pumped me full of trial drug. My mum had the foresight at that point in time to say yes. They said to her, look, we've got this new trial drug we'd like to try Tony on. And my mum said, yes, if it's going to save his life in any way. And they were like, well, we, you know, let's just see what happens. And, you know, within three months I was, I was back kind of to normal being outside the hospital begging for drugs. But, you know, those kind of things just... Even that wouldn't stop me from using drugs. Do you Mm. know what I mean? And there were so many points in my life where I just thought, I can't do this anymore. I can't do this anymore. What got you to the rehab in Bournemouth? Because you were there for five months, weren't you? Yeah, I was there for five months. So basically what had happened was for about three or four months, five months, all I thought about daily was my funeral. All I thought about was who's coming to my funeral, what songs I was having at my funeral who I didn't want at the funeral, who was going to be sitting in the front row. I was going to do a video, a message telling people what I thought of them. Uh, that would change on a daily basis. But, you know, that was all I had to look forward to. And that's not me trying to be like, oh, melodramatic. That was reality. And one night I, it was a Friday night, I'd already been out for three days. I, I broke into my, I was at this point in time, I'd lost my house again. I was staying at my boyfriend's house. Our relationship was dangling by a thread and I'd been missing for three days. And I, I remember hiding in a portal and waiting for him to go out and he went out and I broke into his flat where I was living, but he'd thrown me out and stole his jeans and his clothes and went out again. And he came to the club that night where he'd been barred from for a very long time because he would come to the venues I worked in and he'd say to all the owners, you're going to find him dead on your toilet floor. You know, you're, you're going to have his blood on your hands. You need to stop him, bar him. And I'd be like, he's, he's mental, bar him. And it, we'd, we'd end up having these big fights in these venues. They weren't going to bar me because of who I was and what yeah. job I did. They'd bar him. So he was barred from the cross. And that night he turned up at the cross in King's Cross. I was in the green room. I remember rocking backwards and forwards sitting there. And at this point in time, I had one tooth left at the bottom of my mouth. 
because I'd pulled the rest out and I discovered a new drug which I'd been on for some time called crystal meth and it had completely annihilated me even though I'd already annihilated this took it to death's door and that night he came in and my friend come and told me oh he's here and I was like oh, I can't deal with this tonight and I sat there thinking oh I just can't and he came in the back room and he came up to me and there was no judgment there was no screaming there was no shouting I remember him putting his hand on my on my shoulder and literally saying to me what happened to you what happened and I looked at him and I burst into tears and I just thought can't do this anymore and you know it was that god-given moment that the pilot light came back on that was the moment that I kind of thought I've got to do something and I remember leaving the club with him crying and on the Monday I went to see my doctor and my GP and I said I need help and my GP looked at me and said I've been waiting for four years for you to say that to me so many people wanting to catch you of course but there was no point in saying anything or doing anything because I didn't listen yeah till you're ready I'd stopped listening 10 years before that and I within two weeks I was doing a drug drop-in center I'd found a key worker I started going to the rooms of Narcotics Anonymous and I kind of I found a new way of life, but I couldn't grasp it. I couldn't get my hand around it. I kept thinking, well, what am I going to do if I don't take drugs? Drugs are my life. Mm. Everything we ever did was measured in drugs. You know, we didn't buy new clothes. We stole new clothes because it was drug money and everything was gauged that way. And suddenly you think, well, what am I going to do without it? You know, where do I go from here? And, you know, it was... One of the hardest things to do was to say goodbye to that yeah. Tony. Well, it was your whole identity, right? Your lifestyle. You know, my life was shit, but it was my shit. There was something really comforting in it because I knew that I wasn't going anywhere. And I knew that my life was still still and I knew that there was no one had expectations of me. Do you get what I mean? Because I put myself in that position. Yeah. A carefree world that I lived in. I ached from head to toe. I... Yeah, I was decomposing. Each week I hand over this moment to our partners at Avon. Over the past few months, I've been working closely with Avon reps, supporting them on their personal and business journeys. I'm constantly amazed by not only Avon's work and impact, but the resilience, grit and determination of each and every single Avon rep that I'm lucky enough to speak to day in and day out. They really are an amazing group of women and it's truly humbling to be part of their individual journeys. So with that in mind, for the rest of this series, I'll be handing over this ad break to some of them to share their own unique stories with you. Hello, my name is Kemi Hall. And I'm an incredibly proud independent representative and sales leader for Avon. I joined about seven months ago and it was honestly one of the best decisions I've ever made in my life. I always loved the idea of running my own business, working my own hours and doing something for me. But I just didn't have the tools or the knowledge or the facility to do that. A couple of years ago, I had a bad battle with my mental health and it really sort of held me back. And I'm in a good place today. And I thought, what do I want to do? And then I met two beautiful women that told me all about the Avon opportunity and I grabbed it with both hands. 
In seven months, I've grown my own team. I've had a first-time promotion bonus. I've even been invited to Avon's conference and I was invited up on stage to talk about my journey. And I even won an inspiration award. Me, an inspiration award. Blows my mind, it really does. And it just keeps getting better and better. So thank you, Avon. If you'd like to find out more about our partnership or how you too could go on your own business adventure as an Avon rep, head over to holly.co forward slash Avon. Tell me then you've committed to this change. I'm interested in where this mental resilience came from. What happened was I I was going to the meetings and one night I went there and someone opened their mouth and started talking and it was this lovely lady. And I looked at her and I thought, oh, I'm not going to, I'll stay and hear what she's got to say and then I'm going to leave. And she opened her mouth and she, everything that came out of her mouth was my story. It just resonated with me and it hit me and knocked me off my feet. And that was that moment of surrender. That was that minute where I thought, I'm going to do this. I have to mm. do this. And kind of never, never went backwards from that moment on. I remember when I was in treatment, I was an absolute nightmare because I kept, I had this theory that I went to treatment, they, you know, they threw me out, I came back to London, no one would blame me. <laughs> but they yeah. didn't throw me out. They'd heard it all before. I mean, I did every game under the sun to get thrown out for the first month. And then suddenly I just thought, what are you doing? They're changing your life. This is a chance. And then I just embraced it and I surrendered to the fact that that way of life is not a life. It's a survival and I wanted to live. And really the next four months I really got it and really moved forward. And then I remember on the a week before I was coming back to London, they were like, okay, you can't go back to DJing. You're going to have to find mm. a new career. You can't go back to London. You can't, you should stay in Bournemouth and you can't go back to that relationship because he was also in addiction. And I was like, I'm not going backwards to any of it. I'm going forward to it. Wow. And that has been the way ever since. I went forward to all of those situations. Some of them didn't last. One of them did, the career. But you know what? I just, I wanted to live. I, I, I was so exhausted by trying to kill myself and it didn't work. Yeah. It did not work. Whatever I did did not kill me. I remember being at my drug dealer's house on a Sunday afternoon wrapped up in a rug and him saying to me, the day you get clean is the day you could change people's lives. And I was like, you're my drug dealer. Why would you say that? Apart from the fact that I owed him loads of money and was taking all these drugs. But he was like, look, he saw himself as this like, spiritual shaman and he always has done he still does now even though you know he's completely clean he's changed his life as well but you know he was like i just get this energy from you that you can help to change people's lives and i'd be like oh yeah right lying there wrapped up in a rug with no teeth but it really resonated with me the fact that i just thought this isn't my purpose this isn't who i am my job isn't to come here and roll roll around the floor and then die do you know what i mean no and do you think that it was that because almost in a way, you talked about the beginning of the podcast, didn't you? This jar that you were yeah. a child in, right? Do you think that that's where you were? And almost like this recovery point was almost the first time you became an adult in a way, taking responsibility, forgiving yourself. Was that that moment of child to adult sort of transition? It kind of was. It was the beginning of the transition. So getting clean and learning to live and wash and clean my clothes. Mm. And then finding 
paying bills. I never paid a bill in my life. I was, you know, ever. You know, it's like I got to 51 and I never paid tax. You know, mm. I've mm. always been under the radar. And then to front all of that stuff and say, okay, I'm here. I'm willing to sort this out. I'm no longer running or trying to hide from the facts that, you know. I remember at the time my dog got ill and everyone was like, have you not got pet insurance? I was like, I'm a junkie. Why would I have pet insurance? <laughs> Are you mad? Do you know what I mean? But it kind of put things into perspective. The yeah. thing, suddenly I was sober and people were expecting me to have pet insurance. I was like, wow, what a change, you know. And tell me about that sober part. Like, did people perceive, like, once you were sober, you were healed? Because I know you've written that the first six years of your sobriety was absolutely tough. I was insane. I was insane. Yeah, and that people almost went, oh, black, white, you know, you're now sober. You've got pet insurance. All's good in life, right? <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, they, they kind of perceived it as, okay, he doesn't drink or drug anymore. So therefore he's cured. But, you know... That was never going to be the case because the drinking drugs mm. was the smokescreen for so many of other yes. big problems. My behaviours, as I always say to this day, will always be my behaviours that take me out. It will never be a drink or a drug. My behaviours are what will kill me. I can quite easily get myself into the worst situations by my behaviours without a drink or a drug. Today I have to be mindful about everything. And those first six years of my recovery, I got clean. I got celebrated for being clean. I'd wrote diaries about my clean time and my staying in rehab and had them published so that everyone in London knew that I was clean. But, you know, I was still batshit crazy. I hadn't done no work on myself and there was no change. Mm. And there's only change when there's change, right? Yes. And suddenly I just thought, okay, I'm clean, I'm sober. My life's great. What do I need to do any work on myself for? I've done it. Yeah. I've, I've, yeah. I've cracked it. You've got, yeah, you cracked it. But what I didn't yeah. do was, you know, I never got honest. I had, from the age of 10, I had a major sex addiction that I never mm. discussed or talked about because I'm a gay man. I felt that that was what gay men did. I felt that that's my given right. And when I got mm. clean and sober at 41, I'm like, hey, I'm in my prime. And off I went. And, you know, those addictions overtook everything. And at six years, mm. my sex addiction got me to that point where I was six years previously with no teeth and crying on the floor wanting to kill myself. I hit rock bottom again at six years in recovery. I lost my partner. I lost my house. I lost everything because of my sex addiction, because I'd never mm. discussed it with anyone. And I had allowed it to completely take over and ruin my life. Like any addiction, whether it be food, alcohol, heroin, crack, it wants you dead. Addiction wants you in that room on your own, pulling your teeth out, trying to kill yourself. That's what it wants. And, you know, it was the same with sex. But, you know, where do you go in when you're in recovery and you're this face of recovery? Where do you go? How do you say, hey, guys, I've really, really, really messed up? You know, the shame that goes with that, Yeah. Uh, you know, it's so Back to immense. that word. It was straight back to that place. And... I got on my knees and I asked for help. And I, you know, as I always say, if you don't open your mouth, you don't get fed. And I opened my mouth and I found a new sponsor and I found a new way to work my program. I, got, I started to do the 12 steps and live those 12 steps. And since then, my life's been absolutely incredible because 
I work a staunch program. I I work on my behaviours and I notice my behaviours. You know, there'd be days where I would go into flow with things and three days later I'd think I'd wake up and think, what the hell have you just been doing for three days? You know, I could meet a bunch of people in the street and start bitching and then I would have to be the bitchiest and I wouldn't walk away until I'd reduced people to tears and then I walk away and two days later I think, what did you do that for? You know, but today right. that stuff kicks in really quickly. And I, yeah. as soon as I start to do it, I'll do it for a couple of minutes. And I'll be, hey, yeah, 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 yeah. You don't need to be doing this. Yeah, you don't need to be doing this. Who <laughs> are you impressing? Not... And as my friend George always says to me, who are you entertaining? Mm. And it's so true. You're not entertaining anyone apart from yourself. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, you know, there's no entertainment value in that. You're not going to get a round of applause for it. No. No, and Tony, you're now 16 years clean. I'd be 16 and a half on the 10th of June, yeah. And you have a beautiful life, as you said, a new brand, an identity. You're helping others. You know, you're helping recovering addicts. You're involved in the Terence Higgins Trust to speak openly about the importance of HIV testing. You're back DJing incredible events, spreading happiness and joy with your music and soul. And you've also, you have an apparel line and the funniest Instagram ever I spoke to you about and this book. I'm wondering what success looks like like to you now and has that changed oh my god success before was like traveling around the world and and getting the best gigs or being in the papers or being in magazines that's not success to me today success to me today is sitting on my sofa with my dog not wanting to be anywhere else that's success that's success yeah. success is being all right with it who i am and what i look like and not thinking oh my god i feel old or i look fat don't get me wrong, I still have those moments because mm. we all do. But those moments are moments and they're not days. And that is success. Success is walking down the street and being free and not thinking I can't go out of the house until it's dark because I don't want people to see me. You know, don't get me wrong, I love the success that I've had from the book and my career and people recognising me. That's amazing. You know, there's nothing more feeling than someone coming up and telling you they've read your book. And mm. I never one minute, in my life ever when I was writing the book thought that it was going to be a Sunday Times bestseller it was going to win awards I never thought that was going to happen I thought a few people would read it and if it helped one person then it was success but today you know I get so many messages every day of people reread of reading the book and you know that yes that is success and that's amazing mm. because the success is in the book the fact that I got to that point of where I felt strong enough to write that stuff down, I found freedom from it. Success for yeah. me today is the fact that I am in the most transparent relationship I've ever been in. I am transparent. I will tell you what I think, mm -hmm. which is, you know, for me, that's an asset because I think that if you, you told me all those years ago that the day you get honest is the day you'll find true freedom, I would have laughed in your face. Yes. I spent a lifetime lying and... Hiding. Yeah, totally. I never wanted anyone to get close. You know, I finished the book on one line, which was all I ever wanted to be was loved. And when we were writing it, Mikey said, do you want to leave it on that? And I said, yeah, I do. Because it makes <laughs> my hair stand on end every time I say it. Because that's what the whole book was all about. Mm. Because I spent my lifetime wanting to be liked. I wanted liked. I didn't want anyone ever to love me. I wanted people mm. to like me. And the reason for that was I never wanted anyone to know the real me because my imposter syndrome. Mm. I thought if they knew the real me, they wouldn't like me. 
because I didn't like who I was myself. And I didn't love myself. Today yeah. I love myself. That is success. I love the fact that I am who I am because of everything that I've been through, but also who I am today and tomorrow. The past doesn't define me anymore. The past kind of is a very big jigsaw puzzle that used to be a quarter done. And it's now, I'd say it was 85% done, 95% <laughs> done. You know, but that's enough. That's enough. Well. I'm going to try and ask you another question. I'm completely choked, actually. I'm so happy for you, Tony. I have to Thank tell you. you that. Deeply happy for you. I wanted to ask, because you said previously you've referred to it as recovery and redemption. Is there now peace for you? Mm. Do you think you're at peace? I am at peace on so many levels. On so many levels. You know, I don't wake up in the middle of the night screaming and worried about brown envelopes coming through my door. I don't wake up worrying about what people think of me i don't wake up from any of that stuff you know of course we all care about other people's opinions but there are people's opinions they have nothing to do with me and i kind of have to remember that on a daily basis i've never been happier in my life ever i mean it you know i've been through so much again in the last year on different levels like two years ago i split up with my partner in the new book which comes out on may 25th the paperback version Yes. I've added two new chapters. Oh, great. And people are like, oh, well, I bought the hardback. I feel cheated. It's like, no, 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 no. They're not old chapters. They're new chapters. They're new, mm. meaning what's happened since the book come out to now. Mm. I think it's really important to put that in the book because that book's changed my life. That book's made me realise mm. that there's more to life than shame. There's more to life than hating myself. On a good day, I'm infallible. You know, on a bad day, you know, I'm kind of all right. Mm. That's amazing, right? Amazing. You know, amazing. I just had a cancer scare recently and, you know, it took me straight back to that place of despair. And thank God it all came back benign. But for two months, I really thought I was going to go again. It mm. was like, and it just, it reevaluated everything for me. It just made me realize that like how precious life is. And we're here for such a short time. It's like, you know, when I got a phone call to tell me they thought I had stage three cancer, I was like, okay, right, where do I go from here? And people were like, did you not think about having a drink? And I was like, if I had cancer, the last thing I'd want to drink, I wouldn't want to do drugs. I want to be sober to the very end. I want to be in the moment. Mm. I wouldn't waste those final days on being locked in a room doing drugs. Are you mad? You know what I mean? It kind of just, it just, my life is too precious for that. Tony, this has just been, uh, gosh, I'm going to reflect on everything that you've said today. I want to ask you something. At the end of this podcast, I refer to our brand business people journey as a roller coaster. Yeah. And tell me, what would be, if you were having your lowest low on this journey, I want to ask you, what would be your biggest low and what do you think has been your biggest high on this roller coaster of Tony? So I would say that my biggest low probably was nearly dying from HIV, AIDS. That was my biggest low because I came through that and instead of embracing life at that point, I just went straight out the hospital door and was waiting for drugs in the street because I was powerless. Mm -hmm. And my biggest high, I could say a million and one things about what places I've DJed or where my career's taken me, but my biggest high is freedom. My biggest high really is finding 
someone that loves me for who I am and for me to love them. You know, my new relationship that I'm in is probably one of the biggest highs of my life because I'm actually in it. <laughs> and mm. I've been I had so many relationships in my life that I've never been in. It's always I've I've been on the outside looking on or I've tried to destroy it eternally and mentally. And this one, this relationship is so transparent. There are no secrets. I don't lie. I have nothing else going on apart from the relationship. Yeah. That is so powerfully magical. It's unreal. And, you know, I could say to you, oh, flying here or doing this job or working for the... No, none of them come close to where I am. That peace that I have at night knowing that I can close my eyes and I've had a really good day. You know, I've not been a, a menace to society. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't ask for anything more for you. And I was just reflecting on when we talk about your mum and that she gave you that gift of freedom. Mm. And in a way, you know, there you were as a tiny Tony and that you mm. come full circle, you know, now and you say that freedom is back with you. And I just am so happy. Tony, I know you are going to share with us just a couple of thoughts. Normally we would talk about what would we say to our younger selves? And and I'm interested to hear what you would now say to young Tony. What I would say to young Tony was shut up, listen, right, and find some compassion to love yourself. Because, you know, I always find these things really soppy when people go write a letter to your younger self. I kind of did that within the book. And yes. I think that, you know, writing a letter, when we go to treatment, we write that letter. It's quite an early treatment thing. And the letter that I wrote when I went to treatment would be very different to the letter I'd write now. Because I hadn't worked on myself. I hadn't seen mm. the, my character defects or defaults. What I would say to the younger Tony is just listen. Listen to people. You do not know best, right? You do not. And I would say, you know, just love yourself regardless of all the wrongs or the rights that you make in life. Find that compassion to be who you are and to forgive yourself. Because yeah. when you start to forgive yourself, you can forgive others and don't go through life holding resentment for anything. Deal with it. Just deal with it. Mm. Don't hide away and just face mm. into it. We all had this big fire burning in the middle and we like so many bonfires around it to hide the big fire in the middle. We're like so many bonfires as smoke screens and just put the big fire out. Yeah. Just stop wasting time by lighting other fires. Tony, this has just been, I'm quite fascinated at the moment and I've just turned 46 and I'm fascinated at looking at women and men but the shame and the secrets that we hold and mm. the things that we don't deal with. And as you said, we'll go through maybe the rest of our lives not dealing with it. And what we carry, whether that's addiction or abuse or failure on ourselves and not going after our dreams and all these things. And that's the thing I'm taking out, Tony, is that if you can do this, the way you have spoken, your honesty, it is you must have heard it so many times. It sends shivers down my spine, your honesty. Thank you. And you know what it means that maybe we all can just listen to you, just really take a leaf out of your book and just maybe today, tomorrow, think about dealing with something. Honestly, there's so many amazing people out there that can help you, but you've got to ask for help. You've got to say, I have a problem. Because what we do is we carry that shame and we carry that trauma into every relationship. 
and not even sexual relationships, but every relationship, the way we treat mm -hmm. our friends, the way we treat our partners, the way we treat our children, the way we treat our animals, all of that stuff we carry with us from relationship to relationship. And it's so destructive. You'll never yeah. ever be in that relationship until you're in a relationship with yourself and you don't hate yourself for who you are. Find that compassion. Tony, on that, bless you for doing this podcast. Thank you. We're so, so happy that you've been here. And thank you for making sure that my playlist isn't as loserville as I thought it was. So <laughs> <laughs> bless you, Tony. God bless thank you. you. Thank you so much for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co. Mm -hmm.